Well, good morning again. It is really good to see you this morning. Glad you're here. Glad you've joined us this morning as we gather around the gospel. Invite you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, continuing in a series through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Today we come to the end of chapter 2. We've seen uh, that in this chapter, chapter 2, Our perspective really zooms in on some particular moments in creation, especially, particularly, the creation of man, like we saw last week, and the creation of woman, and the institution of marriage uh, is what we'll see this morning. So Genesis chapter 2, and we'll start reading in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Men and women are different. Okay, amen, okay. You don't seem to be surprised by that, which is a good thing, but it's 2019, so you can't assume. Um, But there's different points along the way in life when that reality that men and women are different become more clear, or where maybe you learn that in a different way. Um, Well, one of those, for me, came when I was in college. Uh, I was living in Jacksonville, Florida at the time, and uh, some of my friends uh, went uh, we all went from Jacksonville down to Orlando uh, to the theme park Universal Studios. And our goal as college students was to go to Universal Studios without spending any money. Which is a terrible plan uh, because they basically charge you money to look at the place. So that did not work. So instead we went with plan B, which uh, we decided we could afford to go mini golf. So we, we were going to go to mini golf. And uh, there's a bunch of us going, and I was one of the drivers, and I was driving, and I was in a car full of, of girls. So there was a girl in the passenger seat, girl, uh, three girls in the back row, and it was just it was me and them, and we were driving to go mini golf. And we were on one interstate, getting off onto another interstate. Well, it had been raining that day. It wasn't raining at the moment, uh, but it had been raining. And as I get onto the ramp to get onto this other interstate, I realize that I'm going too fast for wet roads. And so I hit the brakes and I try to slow down. But as soon as I hit the brakes, my car goes, uh, I start to lose control of the car. 
a hydroplane, and on this ramp off of the interstate onto another, after we'd just been going about 65 miles an hour, the, I lose control of the car, and all of a sudden, before I know it, the car is, has fishtailed, and it is, I mean, it spun a completely 180 on this narrow little ramp, and we are facing oncoming traffic on this ramp off of the interstate. Fortunately, by the grace of God, the car behind us was far enough away that it had time to stop, and we didn't hit the, the side of the ramp. Uh, it, it, was, it was just this shocking moment of what in the world has just happened, and the car behind us kind of slows to a stop right in front of us, face-to-face now all of a sudden. And, of course, the girls are all screaming at the top of their lungs, and I'm, you know, my knuckles are, like, white on the steering wheel, and we're just, like, in shock. And so I, I do a little, like, 17-point turn <laughs> on the ramp uh, and go down, uh, you know, on the ramp. And, of course, then it's just, like, silent in the car. I mean, just dead silent as we're just all reeling from the trauma of what just happened. And so we, we get off the interstate, and... Um, we, we pull off, and I, I just, you know, I didn't think there was anything wrong with the car, but it, it all happened so fast, you, you don't even realize what's gone on. So, so we pull off, and, and I go around, I check the car, and everything's okay. We, sure enough, n- you know, nothing happened to the car. Uh, everyone in, inside is fine, you know, no whiplash or anything. And so, you know, once I started breathing again, and my heartbeat kind of came down, you know, I looked around, looked at the girls, and they were all, you know, just like, you know, pale face, like from the shock. And I was like, all right, who's ready to go play mini golf? (laughs) Well, apparently, males and females process that sort of thing a little bit differently. And those girls were not ready to go play mini golf. No, they needed closure. Maybe that's something I needed. At that point, I didn't realize that was something that anyone needed. But they needed closure. They needed to talk about what had happened. They needed to talk about what didn't happen and could have happened. They needed to talk about what my mom would have thought of her only son in the car. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I was, I'm happy. Like, we're okay. The car's fine. We're fine. We can go play mini golf. We got the rest of the day, guys. Like, why are you? But by the time that they walked through all the things that, that happened or could have happened and didn't happen, I was like down. Like, man, like, I'm as discouraged now as if, we weren't all right. What in the world happened? Apparently, uh, there's a difference between the way that males and females process those sorts of things. And I was uh, taught that lesson in really clear fashion that day. Um, so that's one, that's one example. Throughout our lives, we see these things that, that become apparent. And we see it because God made it that way. Men and women... Are, are different not only physically, they're different mentally. They're different in, in, in both inside and outside. There is something that God has made as he has created humans. He, he made them male and female, he says in chapter 1 of Genesis. It's part of God's good design that men and women are different. And what we're going to see in our text this morning uh, is God created us for relationship. He created men and women to relate to one another in general. He specifically in this chapter creates the sacred union of marriage. And we see that this union between man and woman, the differences between men and women, all point to God himself. And specifically the relationship that we are to have 
as the church with Christ. So we're going to see all that as we look at Genesis 2 this morning. And uh, so let's go ahead and get into the text and we will dive in. So at this point in Genesis 2, uh, God has already formed the man out of the dust of the ground. He breathed life into him, placed the man in paradise, gave him instructions. And, and this is all good. And by the end of the week of creation, chapter 1 tells us that God will declare that everything he's made is very good. But what we find out in this chapter is before we can get there, there's something that is not good. There's something that is not good. And that's what we see in verse 18. Look with me again at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The first thing we need to see in this text is that God created men and women to relate to one another. God created men and women to relate to one another. It's not good for man to be alone. We're not made to be loners. We were made for a relationship, not only with God, as we saw last week, but also with other humans. It's part of what it means to reflect God as his image bearers. God himself is not a single person all alone. He is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one God has existed for all of eternity in relationship. And so to reflect this God as his image bearers, we must be in relationship. He made us to be in relationship and to enjoy relationship as he has enjoyed relationship in himself for all of eternity. But we don't only find the basis of all human relationships here, which we do. Uh, Not only that, we also see in this, right from the very beginning of humanity, God's good design for gender. God looks at man and sees it's not good for him to be alone. But it's also not good for God to give man a clone of himself. Instead, God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, first let's look at that word helper. Don't take that word helper as demeaning. Uh, This is a word not only used of women here, but often, and most often in Scripture, this is actually uh, a word used for God himself. So, for example, in Psalm 46.1, whenever the psalmist writes, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, he's using that same word, helper, help. So God is our helper in the sense that he does for us what we can't do for ourselves. And likewise, man cannot bear God's image by himself. Man needs a helper. Man needs woman. The word helper does not mean that woman is lower. It means that woman is necessary. But notice also that word or that term fit for him. Now, this this is a term that's loaded with meaning. It it carries with it a sense of both equality and difference. God intends to make man a counterpart, one who is equal in purpose, equal in value, equal in soul, equal in intellect, equal in dignity. But his good design is also to make woman different. She's not to be a carbon copy of man. She is to complement 
man. Not compliment like you look nice today. Compliment like with, a, with an E, like the word complete. Compliment. She is to add to him what he does not have. It's God's good design that we have two genders and only two genders. Now, that doesn't mean that all forms of masculinity are exactly alike. It doesn't mean that all forms of femininity are exactly alike. But it does mean that there is masculinity and femininity. There are two genders, and that is God's design. It's his good design. He made us male and female on purpose. So God looks on the man who's alone, and he declares his plan to make a helper fit for him. Then, in verses 19 and 20, God parades all of the animals that he's already made in front of man. But as Adam looks at the animals, he does not find his counterpart. And this highlights two things. One, humans are in a totally different class than animals. As Adam is looking among the animals for his equal, he does not find a creature that even comes close. He's looking for his equal, but he doesn't find her among any of the other creatures that God has already made. But the second thing that happens is man is looking at all of these animals and naming them uh, as the one who would take dominion over them like God had intended for him to do. Uh, Adam's looking and he sure enough sees each animal has its fitting counterpart. There's male and female birds, male and female livestock, male and female amphibians and reptiles. But here's man without a counterpart, all alone. And so in this parade of animals, God is giving man the opportunity to recognize for himself, it's not good that I'm alone. There's something wrong with this picture. By himself, things are not the way they are supposed to be. Man needs his counterpart. And so that's exactly what God makes for Adam. Look again at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Notice this intentional process that God goes through as he creates woman. He doesn't form woman out of the dust of the ground like he did with Adam. He takes the one flesh of Adam and separates part of his flesh from his body. And with some of man's own flesh, God builds a woman. Again, notice the equality of man and woman in this. They are made of the same stuff. They are equal in their dignity and value as God's image bearers. We also need to recognize, and this will become clear later in Scripture, and we'll talk about this a little bit later here. There is, in God's good design, an order to how he made man and woman. So God made man first, and he made woman second. He made man first, and he made woman, he says, for man. He made man first, and he made woman from man. And that was not an accident. Again, as scripture unfolds, we find that God built this order into humanity from the beginning. 
to be lived out in two arenas. One, the church, and two, in marriage. God had something that he wanted to communicate about himself through humanity, so in his wise and good design, he did not make man and woman simultaneously. He made them in a specific order, in a way that would only be fully understand once the fullness of Scripture was completed. But God made men and women uh, to relate to one another. That's what we see here. There's God's good design for male and female. They are equal in value. They are distinct from one another. And he made them in a specific order. So in light of this, how should men and women relate to one another? Well, because God made male and female equal, we should treat one another with dignity and honor. There is no room in God's design for any form of sexism. There's no room in God's design for for condescending comments. For looking down on people of the opposite sex. When you are looking at a person who is of the opposite gender as you, you are looking at a fellow image bearer who God intends for you to treat with dignity and value and honor. Because God made male and female distinct from one another, we should celebrate our differences. Men and women are different by design. It's a good thing. Men shouldn't expect women to be more like men. Women shouldn't expect men to be more like women. No, it's good that there are distinctions between male and female. God gave us distinct strengths so that we would benefit from one another. We would complement one another. As a man, I need to recognize that women bring something valuable to the table that no man could ever bring. And vice versa. We need to celebrate our differences because God built them into his image bearers. And because God made male and female in order, we should also embrace what God wants to teach us about himself through different roles within marriage and the church. We're going to look at marriage here in a little bit, but specifically as we think about the order that God made man and woman in, we need to think about what God was trying to do and how he fleshed this out with roles within the church. So the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So what we see as Scripture unfolds is that part of God's good design for the distinction and the order between men and women is played out within the church. Now let's be really clear about something. The Holy Spirit gives women the spiritual gift of teaching. And the body of Christ is not healthy until women who have been given the gift of teaching are using it to build up the body in love. Likewise, the Holy Spirit gives women the gift of leadership. That's one of the, role, or one of the um, spiritual gifts that we find in Scripture. And the body of Christ is not fully functioning until women who have been gifted in that way are in the church using that gift of leadership to build up the body of Christ. 
But what we find here is that women are not to teach or exercise authority over men within the church because that is part of God's good design. There is something that God wanted to communicate about himself through that distinction. We're going to talk more on that later, so put a pin in that for just a moment. We'll come back to that in a little bit and get more of a hint at what it is that God's intention is in that, why it is that he would do that. So we've seen that God created men and women to relate to one another. The equality, distinction. Next, what we're going to see, though, is that God created the sacred relationship of marriage. God created the sacred relationship of marriage. So look back at verse 22. Notice that after God made the woman, it says that he brought her to the man. In the first wedding, God himself gives away the bride. But truthfully, God is the one who gives away the bride in every marriage. God brings the first husband and wife together in the first marriage, which serves as a pattern for all other marriages. Marriage is not just God's idea. Marriage is God's doing every time. Jesus made this clear whenever he talked about marriage in his earthly ministry. Uh, When a man and woman marry, God joins them together. And Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So then look at how Adam reacts when God presents Adam with his bride. We see in verse 23, the first words ever recorded as spoken by a human, and they're in the form of poetry. Read with me verse 23. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Finally, Adam says, I have finally met my match. Man has been longing to find a creature who was his equal. A being who would fit him who complimented him, who he could have a true, satisfying, soul-to-soul relationship with. And at last, here she was, his counterpart. Bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, the very same kind of being that he was. As we see God institute marriage in this passage, uh, we need to recognize that from the beginning, God's design for marriage is heterosexual monogamy. <laughs> heterosexual, and in that marriage is between a man and a woman. One member of each gender who complement one another, who are equal to one another in dignity and value, but distinct from one another in gender and in role and responsibility. But marriage is also monogamous between one man and one woman. As scripture unfolds, uh, we see many instances of polygamy, of one person being married to multiple spouses. And the Bible records that, but what the Bible records, it does not endorse. God's good design from the beginning was for marriage to be between one man and one 
woman. Um, and, and here in this verse, again, we see the order in which God made male and female. Woman was taken out of man. And the order in which God made male and female was an intentional decision by God. We've already seen he intended for this to be uh, expressed in a way in the church, but we also need to recognize that this order that he made male and female has implications for marriage. God made male first and female second because he intended the husband to be in a role of authority within the marriage relationship. This authority does not mean that the husband is more important than the wife. And it does not mean that marriage is all about the husband and the wife is just tagging along. Husband and wife are equal in value, equal in dignity, equal in purpose. The authority that God expects a husband to exercise is a distinct role and responsibility that God gives the husband in order to serve and support the relationship. A marriage needs to be cared for, nourished, cultivated, And the husband is to take initiative and lead in fostering the health of the marriage. If there's a lack of health in the relationship, responsibility falls first and foremost on the husband. As the one with authority in the relationship, God will hold the husband accountable for the relationship. Well, so then we come to verse 24, and... It's interesting because there's sort of a break in the story, a break in the narrative flow. Moses breaks in, and he gives sort of a commentary, a theological commentary on what is going on here. He says in verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Therefore, Because of all that we have seen so far about the way in which God created man and woman and brought them together, here's what God intends for marriage. Notice the progression. First, leaving. So when a person gets married, they are to leave father and mother. The marriage union is so holy, so significant, that it takes priority over all other human relationships. God does not intend for us to cut ties with our parents, with our families, but he does intend for us to have a greater loyalty to our spouse than to any other human on the planet. When you are married, you should not be closer to anyone than you are to your spouse. You should not put anyone else above your spouse. Your marriage is sacred and unique. Therefore, your relationship with your family must change when you get married. You must leave. Leave physically. Leave emotionally. Leave financially and otherwise. Leave in order to, second, hold fast. Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Uh, This term hold fast is covenant language in Scripture. It's the same language used of how Israel was supposed to cling to Yahweh. You are, if you are married, you are to commit yourself to your spouse. You are to devote your life to loving your spouse, serving your spouse. But marriage is more than just a contract. Third, we see here, 
becoming one flesh. So there's leaving, there's holding fast, and there's becoming one flesh. Back in verses 21 and 22, we saw a foreshadowing of the one flesh union that God intends for a husband and wife to have. The first husband and wife literally began as one flesh, as one person that God created. And out of that one flesh, he took a part of it and made man and woman. And right out of the, right out of the gate, right from the beginning, there is an indication of the type of closeness and intimacy of the one flesh union that God intends for husbands and wives to have. In marriage, that one flesh union is what God has designed. It's expressed first through sexual, the sexual relationship between husband and wife. God created sex to promote oneness between a husband and wife. And that's why sexual activity outside of marriage is wrong. Sex was meant to join husband and wife together in covenant relationship. It's not meant for any other relationship. Likewise, uh, this is why Jesus teaches that the only time that divorce is acceptable is in the case of adultery. Because when one person commits adultery, they're joining to another person. They have horrifically severed the one flesh union that God brought together with their spouse. What God has joined together, let no one separate. But the one flesh union is to extend beyond just the sexual relationship between husband and wife. Paul writes that when a husband and wife marry, their bodies are not their own anymore. Husband, your body belongs to your wife. Wife, your body belongs to your husband. And husbands, according to Paul in Ephesians 5, we are to love our wife as if she were our own body. In every way. We are not to put ourselves first. That's not our priority anymore. We are not to belong to ourself anymore. We are to put our spouse first. There is a oneness in the marriage relationship that God intends for his glory and for our joy. So God created men and women to relate to one another. He created the sacred union of marriage. Uh, but also, and most importantly, what we need to see about this passage is what it points to is that God created us for a relationship with Christ. God created us for a relationship with Christ. Uh, so look at verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Adam and Eve had the perfect marriage because it was a marriage free from sin. We would all have perfect marriages if our marriages were free from sin. And just think about even what this verse communicates about what kind of relationship they were able to have as they were able to know one another in a way that no two sinners have been able to quite know each other ever since. They were able to relate to one another without hiding anything. They were free to be open. They were free to be vulnerable. They had total trust and zero shame. But this would not last. 
the moment that Adam and Eve sinned against God, they became aware of their nakedness. All of a sudden, they had something to hide. They were ashamed. They couldn't be seen the way that they were. They were broken, and they needed a Savior. They were dirty, and they needed to be cleansed. They were naked, and they needed to be clothed. And in this passage, in Genesis chapter 2, we have a foreshadowing of the Savior who is to come. We have a foreshadowing of the one who would cleanse from sin. We have a foreshadowing of the one who would clothe with his righteousness. So we've already discussed uh, verse 24 as God's design for marriage, but what we need to recognize is that this verse is loaded with meaning beyond what we have seen already and beyond even what the original readers would have seen. In this verse, in verse 24, is a mystery. Not a mystery like a whodunit, but a mystery in the biblical sense. In the Bible, the word mystery is used to describe something that is true, but is hidden in God until he reveals it. And here in Genesis 2, we find just such a mystery. Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's read uh, verses 28 through 32. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Verse 30. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Sound familiar? Then look at verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. We see here a connection between the relationship of Christ and the church and the relationship between a husband and wife. But what we need to recognize, though, is that Paul is not using marriage as an analogy for Christ and the church. It's not as though he's trying to make a point about Christ, and so he says, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like marriage. No. It's not as though marriage came first, and then along came Christ and the church, so Paul points backwards to explain Christ and the church. No, that's not what Paul's doing here. What Paul is saying is that from the beginning, marriage was a picture of Christ and the church. God had a plan for Christ and the church first, and then came marriage. Marriage is a shadow, and the reality belongs to Christ. Notice that Paul quotes directly 
from Genesis 2.24. And immediately in verse 32, he writes, This mystery, Genesis 2.24, is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. All the way back in Genesis 2, before Israel or even Moses knew the full meaning of marriage, God had embedded a picture of the redemption he would bring through Christ. He embedded that picture in the institution of marriage. Just consider the story that we've already seen unfold about the first marriage. The first man and woman started as one flesh, as united as you can get. And then they were separated only to be joined back together by God in a one flesh union. Likewise, the first humans were in perfect relationship with God. Perfect, as close as you can get. But they were separated from God because of sin. Our relationship with God is broken. It's severed because of sin. We cannot know God on our own. Because of our sins, including, among others, sexism, lust, pornography, homosexuality, transgenderism, sexual acts before marriage, adultery, spousal abuse, harsh words, deceit, abuse of power, And many, many more. We've seen God's design for marriage. And we have seen, hopefully, an ideal that none of us have ever lived up to. And this is just in the sphere of marriage. If we zoom out into all the areas of life, we find more and more sin. More and more brokenness. More and more ways in which you and I are not living according to God's design. Not in our marriage, not in any relationship, not in our hearts. And because of that, our relationship with God is severed. We are far from God because of sin on our own. The kind of relationship we deserve to have with God because of sin is not the beautiful union like we see with husband and wife. No, the kind of relationship we deserve to have with God is the kind of relationship between a righteous judge and a guilty convict. But Jesus looked on us in our brokenness, in our unfaithfulness to him, in our filth, in our shame, and he came to earth to win his bride. If you're still in Ephesians, look at verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus, the true and perfect bridegroom, gave himself up for his bride, the church. Though his people deserved to die, he took on their death. 
Though we were filthy in sin, he took on our stains. He took on our shame. He took on our sin, our sexual immorality, our failures in our marriages, our failures to love our fellow image bearers. He took on our sin so that he would cleanse his bride, so that she would one day be presented to him in radiant white. Though we were separated from God because of sin, Jesus has defeated sin and death and has made a way for us to be joined into perfect union with God again. Like we sang a moment ago, precious, or, sorry, glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, now with man are intertwined. When we repent of sin and trust in Jesus' death and resurrection to save us, we become part of Jesus' bride. We become part of Jesus' body. The one flesh union that God instituted in marriage is perfected in Christ as he takes his bride and treats us with the honor and value and love that he has for his own flesh. This is the relationship that we were made for. Your maleness or your femaleness are meant to point to this relationship. Your sexuality is meant to point you to this relationship. Gender, marriage, sexuality, they are all neon arrows pointing us to Christ. And we need to recognize that marriage is not the ultimate relationship. It's pointing to the relationship between Christ and the church. And this is really good news for married people. Because we don't have to look for ultimate satisfaction in our spouse and your spouse thanks you for not looking for ultimate satisfaction in them, by the way. But this is also really good news for single people. You can still experience the best that God intended for humanity, even when you're not married. Without ever having a one flesh union with another human, you can be fully human. Jesus the most fully human person that ever lived was himself, single. If you remain unmarried your entire life, you can still have the best of what humanity has to offer because the best relationship a human can have is a relationship with Christ. So I want to go back to that pin that we put in uh, that topic earlier um, when we recognize that marriage was meant to point to Christ in the church, it also helps us make sense of why God established an order in the creation of male and female. Um, so, we, like we said, he intended a husband to have authority over his wife, not because male is better than female, but because the husband is to be a picture of Christ. And the authority that Christ has is our head. And the wife is to be a picture of the church and the dependence that we have as the church, as his body, the dependence that we, his body, have on Christ, our head. He chose to embed this picture of Christ's headship, not in every male-female relationship, only in the most intimate male-female relationship. So that 
the most special, sacred, holy union between two human beings, the union of marriage would point to the closeness, the uniqueness, the special nature of the relationship that Christ has with his church. The home is one place where the Bible calls for distinction and gender roles. The other is within the church. And when we consider what these distinctions were meant to point to, this makes sense, doesn't it? God created man and woman in a specific order to point to Christ and the church. So, of course, within the church, he would choose to use, uh, he would choose to use the church itself as a place where that order is expressed. Again, there are no gender-specific spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit gives the same gifts to both genders. But, as we read a moment ago, the Bible does not permit women to teach men or exercise authority over men. Because God wants to use the distinction between genders to point us to Christ. So as we think about the relationship between Christ and the church, the ultimate relationship that God made us for, uh, we need to recognize that if we have placed our faith in Jesus, he has made us part of his body, part of his bride. Today, we have a relationship with our bridegroom, Jesus, who loves us, who gave himself for us, and who is sanctifying us. But the best is still to come. We, the bride, are still awaiting our wedding day. We are still awaiting the day when, as we read in Ephesians 5, Jesus presents the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Uh, would you turn with me one last place as we, uh, as we make our way to the table? Turn to Revelation chapter 19. Our hope is that one day we will be joined to our bridegroom for all of eternity. And when he comes back for us to bring us to himself, that day is going to be a royal wedding like you have never seen. Revelation 19, and uh, let's read starting in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. That day, we, the bride of Christ, will feast with our bridegroom. Clothed in dazzling white, celebrating the fact that he gave himself for us in order to present us to himself 
holy and blameless. And while we wait for that feast, our bridegroom has given us a meal to eat in the meantime. Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper so that we would remember his death for his bride. And he also gave us the Lord's Supper so that we would long for the day that we are reunited with our bridegroom. Jesus said on that night that he had his last supper with his disciples, uh, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. As we long for the day that we feast with our bridegroom, let's come to his table today. The Lord's Supper is a meal for members of the body of Christ. So even if you're not a member of Rocky Point, but you are a baptized member of a gospel preaching church, we would invite you to come to this table. As we eat the bread and drink the cup, may all of us who trust in Jesus have our hunger and thirst satisfied in him. If you have not trusted in Jesus, we would ask you to let the elements pass by you whenever they come by. Um, but my prayer is that this, as you see us partake in this meal that our bridegroom has given us, uh, that it would cause your hunger and thirst for Jesus to grow. My prayer is that you would consider the open invitation that Jesus makes to you. He says, whoever comes to me will not hunger or thirst. You can have your soul satisfied by Jesus. You can have your sins forgiven through Jesus' death. You can have eternal life through Jesus' resurrection. All you have to do to receive it is turn from your sin and put your full confidence in Jesus' work on your behalf. As we take the Lord's Supper, I, I pray that you would consider those truths. Let's pray together, and, uh, and then those who are serving the Lord's Supper will come up, they'll distribute the elements, and uh, we'll hold them and wait um, as we hear a song sung. And then after the song is over, we'll take the elements of the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God, a good creator with a good design. And Lord, from the beginning, as we have seen, you intended to point us to the ultimate relationship that we can experience, the relationship between Christ and his bride. And Lord, all of us who have trusted in Christ, you have made a part of his bride. And so Lord, as we take this cup that symbolizes the blood of our bridegroom spilt for us, as we take of this bread, symbolizing the body of our bridegroom broken for us, his bride, I pray that our faith would well up inside of us. Lord, that we would have a, a deeper hunger, a deeper thirst for Jesus, and that we would know our hunger and thirst can be satisfied in him and him alone. Lord, we thank you for the death of Jesus, for what you purchased for us. Be honored as we take of this meal now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.